0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Dr. Robert Waldinger, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and Zen priest. Dr. Waldinger is also the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, the longest running study on longevity and happiness. He's also the author of the best selling book, The Good Life Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. I hope you enjoy our conversation today, and thank you for listening. Well, Bob, it's great to have you uh, with me today. And I really appreciate you taking, uh, the time. And, um, uh, I know you have many things on your plate and this is probably your 10,000th podcast. Uh, having done, <laughs> I like that side glance of disapproval, uh, askance, I guess is the word. Um, uh, but, uh, having been on many myself, uh, uh, uh it's always interesting to, uh, sort of, uh, process, uh, you know, why are you doing this? But, uh, I don't know if you recall, there's a story by, <laughs> by, uh, uh, Jimmy Page, uh, the, uh, uh, with Led Zeppelin. And he was asked, well, he used to complain, you know, everyone wants me to play Led uh, Stairway to Heaven at my concerts. I said, he said, I'm so tired of Stairway to Heaven. I played it a million times. And, uh, uh, And then he processed this after a while and he realized that uh, it wasn't about him anymore. And what he was giving people by playing it uh, was sort of a connection to an event or a memory they had that held a lot of importance to them. And then um, he gained the insight that it's not about him, which uh, I think all of us can uh, learn from that statement.
1: Absolutely. And that's actually... One of the reasons why I keep doing the podcast, as you say, it's important to keep remembering, why are we doing this? And I really care about these ideas.
0: Exactly. Well, uh, a little bit earlier, uh, before we uh, came on, uh, we were talking about Buddha, since there's one prominent on my left shoulder. Uh, And you said you had a lot, which brings me back to actually maybe a question. And I don't know if uh, uh, many people have asked you this. Uh, How does someone... uh, become a Zen priest, and uh, I'm assuming that was after you went to medical school. Uh, maybe you could just uh, share that experience with us.
1: Sure. Um, I'm actually now also a Zen master, a Roshi, and um, which is a teaching. Zen priest is a, a vow of service, and the Roshi part is the teaching part. Um, But I stumbled into a Zen meditation group about 20 years ago um, at the local Unitarian church whenever one of my kids' friends was having a coming-of-age ceremony. And um, the minister was also a Zen master. And I had been um, really drawn to the philosophical ideas of Buddhism for many years, but had never been able to sustain a meditation practice and somebody once said to me you know you really need to sit with a group regularly and find a teacher and then you'll be able to keep practicing and that turned out to be true so about 20 years ago I started doing that never dreamed I would get as involved as I have
0: that's fascinating but you know it's interesting because I think um if you're interested in the human condition authentically, uh, that leads you down this path in the sense of some of the philosophical, uh, underpinnings of, uh, Buddhism and, uh, compassion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've sort of begun to see that all, all three of the big things I do in my life are about that. It's about the human
0: condition. Uh, so, you know, on that note, uh, <laughs> Uh, I know you have, of course, uh, the book *The Good Life*. But uh, and people use this term happiness. Maybe you could define happiness uh, as uh, what happiness is for you. Um, as you know, many people get up or get caught up in the Western capitalist narrative of success, which equates to power, position, and money, somehow uh, leads to happiness.
1: Yeah, and we know how well that works. (laughs) I've Um,
0: experienced myself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But um, so actually, there's research on this, and happiness seems to fall into two big buckets. Um, One is hedonic well-being, uh, which comes from hedonism. It's really the question, am I having fun right now? Um, So, you know, a good meal, a nice party, a nice talk with a friend. um, And that's moment to moment. And as we know, that comes and goes moment to moment. Um, And then there's eudaimonic well-being. It comes from the Greek. And it's that sense that life is basically worthwhile and okay. And so that's a much more abiding, ongoing sense that isn't subject to the moment-to-moment ups and downs. And most of us want some of each kind of happiness, but some of us prioritize one kind more than the other. And often at different times in our lives, we prioritize one more than the other.
0: Well, you know, I think it's interesting, though, because... When we talk about happiness, we talk about uh, sort of this good feeling of, of, uh, in terms of udomonic happiness, uh, sort of looking outward at how others uh, are doing, how they're suffering perhaps, how we can sort of remain connected. But um, I think what happens sometimes is, though, that people also forget, you know, what gives meaning and purpose, which is very much, I think, interconnected with happiness. But as you said, hedonic happiness oftentimes is quite transitory. And I think udomonic happiness is much deeper, long-lasting. And I think that is the path to purpose and meaning. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, Purpose and meaning are part of that sense that life is basically good, worthwhile. Um, And uh, it really depends on so many factors what you prioritize. Some people don't care about that stuff. And, you know, and some people just care about making a whole lot of money or becoming super famous. And, uh, you know, there's really, it's difficult to decide for any one person what's the right path. I mean, I can say what's right for me, and I can say what has worked well for the thousands of people we've studied over 85 years in our research. Um, But I also see quite a lot of people living very different lives, having very different priorities and different values. Um, The one thing you learn when you study thousands of people over time is one size never fits all.
0: Yeah, and there's certainly outliers. And uh, But, you know, it's interesting because uh, part of my life has been as a neurosurgeon. And uh, uh, people will, if they get diagnosed with, let's say, a, a high-grade astrocytoma, or a highly malignant tumor, they'll say, well, what are my odds? And I say, I can tell you the odds for thousands of people. I can't tell you your odds because everyone is different and different physiology, different immune systems, different events happen in their lives that have a profound uh, influence. But I certainly um, feel the same way in the sense that I, of course, have run into a lot of people who have completely different uh, uh, perspectives, who are only interested in making money or uh, chasing hedonic happiness. And um I can't say how they feel or how they live, but I certainly know that uh, that lifestyle doesn't work for me. Yeah,
1: right. me either. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, and, and the, it's interesting though, uh, as an example, I'm sure you're of course aware of you know, the statistics on uh, what high school students want to be, right? I mean, if you ask them, a significant percentage want to be rich, a number of them want to be quote-unquote influencers. And then there's the other group who uh, <clears throat> want to be famous. Uh, and at the end of the day, though, and I think this is why we, as an example, look at uh, many individuals who uh, have chased money or uh, have been influencers, <clears throat> uh, And many of them are miserably unhappy. They're trying to project to others that they live the perfect life. But I think what happens is in our society, people get um, accolades for some things that I don't think are worth accolades, like chasing money or being an influencer. But that gives them affirmation of their path because so many people want to try that or want to be that, thinking that that's the path. Yet deep inside, many of these people are very unhappy. And that leads to this sort of disconnection and often depression and sadly, sometimes suicide. Yeah. Looking at the study uh, that you mentioned earlier, you know, I had initially thought it was primarily just Harvard students, but there was a, a subset of uh, students uh, who were disadvantaged students, They were
1: young men from Boston's um, poorest neighborhoods, but also the most troubled families. Uh, Actually, two-thirds of the study members were from that group. Only one-third was the Harvard group. And um, the two-thirds were from, they were deliberately chosen because they were from families that were known on average to five social service agencies for domestic violence, for severe parental illness, physical illness, mental illness. Um, And the question that the investigators had was, how do children born with so many strikes against them manage to stay on good developmental paths? So it was a study of thriving, but among kids who weren't supposed to thrive.
0: And maybe you can give us insights into that uh, as to what uh, held them together, because, of course, this is the group who would be now uh, exposed to what we call adverse childhood experiences. And as you know, I mean, the higher that number, the less likely that they will um, succeed, at least by what uh, typical uh, society considers succeeding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of a lot of this comes from the child development literature that really what they find is that um, children who have a consistent warm relationship with one adult are much more likely to thrive even in the face of adversity and and thriving in the face of adversity is the definition of resilience uh, doing well when you're not supposed to do well. Um, And, you know, Michael Rutter, who's a a famous child developmental psychologist, said every child needs at least one adult who's crazy about them. And a lot of these young men in our study had somebody who was their anchor in the midst of what was often chaos.
0: Well, and I think that's something uh, really important to emphasize. Uh, I think that that one person can have a huge, huge impact. And I think sometimes, though, what an individual feel is, well, I I don't have the ability to um, impact another person's life. And uh, I think the reality is that you neither have to be wealthy, uh, affluent, connected. You just have to care.
1: Well, and we're always impacting each other's lives, constantly, whether we know it or not.
0: (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Exactly. For good and bad yeah. sometimes. One of the, I think, challenges for people that they um, get lost in, and obviously this will relate to your experience with uh, Buddhist philosophy, is uh, this uh, idea of craving and attachment. And maybe you could, you know, talk about how that can uh, perhaps negatively affect uh, human thriving. Well, hmm Attachment
1: refers to this idea that, you know, we all have preferences all the time. We're all liking some things and disliking other things and wanting to hold on to some things and push other things away. And and of course, some of the time, that's just the truth of life. But some of the time, those preferences are totally optional. And Buddhism asks... Is it really possible to give up some of those preferences and if you do might you actually have a happier time of it Um, if I throw a tantrum because they're out of chocolate ice cream at the ice cream store and I really like chocolate ice cream is that really suffering or is that just my mind deciding what it wants and what it doesn't want and so attachment is really i mean are we attached to uh not being in pain yes of course you know are we attached to not being physically ill sure um but a lot of what we think we need and think we have to have in our lives is optional and that's what buddhist teachings ask us to keep looking at
0: well uh, and and it's interesting you say it because You mention, you know, your mind creates a value system of what it believes it needs. Uh, oftentimes, um, that is in contradistinction to what they really need. Sometimes, um, so um, so you look at this craving attachment, and I, my point was that oftentimes, you can have an unhealthy attachment, which then leads you astray. Or you're so focused on that that you uh, forget uh, to be in the present.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, in terms of thinking about what you, what you need to get in the future, a um, lot of focus on that. And you can totally forget what's around you right now. That's wonderful if you just stop and appreciate it. Absolutely.
0: No, I, I think that and sadly, I think that that's a very common issue with many, many people. They're either focused on a past that they cannot change or a future that hasn't exist, or doesn't exist yet. And they uh, at least you know my feeling has been that while it's wonderful to set goals, getting lost in that goal and forgetting uh, the present moment uh, really uh, oftentimes leads to unhappiness.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Of course, I'm sure you're familiar with the blue zones. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and I think uh, that work, as well as uh, the work of the Harvard study, uh, very much um, overlap in terms of, uh, of what makes someone uh, happy, if we're going to use that term for now, uh, uh, versus maybe human thriving or human flourishing. But regardless, what... Uh, <clears throat> Maybe you can just summarize what the findings are uh, to date of this uh, study.
1: We just published our 11th book. So there are a few findings, but probably. Of course,
0: the- I, I would hope so after 85 years, yeah. right?
1: But the biggest takeaways have to do with taking care of your health, that it hugely matters for uh, how long you live uh, that that, and, and for also how long you stay disability free as you get older. Um, so that means, you know, eating well, not being obese, not abusing alcohol or drugs, um, getting enough sleep, getting regular exercise, all of those things. but they they really do translate into disability free life years in our study. Um, but then the other thing that we found which um, we didn't believe at first was that the people who, had the warmest, best relationships with other people, lived significantly longer and stayed healthier than the people who didn't prioritize relationships. Um, And uh, that's sort of emerged both in our findings and in many other studies now, over and over again in the last 30 years.
0: No, I I think uh, it's interesting. It's a well-established fact, but uh, oftentimes, Uh, people still feel uh, disconnected or lonely. And uh, uh, part of it is, I think, living in the modern world creates a lot of stress and anxiety. And unlike those who live in the blue zones or lived that uh, way a few hundred years ago, at least, and maybe you can comment on this, my sense is that in those environments where you... Are born and where you die in a village everyone knows you everyone knows the good and the bad and uh, and still loves you and takes care of you and watches out for you and in modern society you don't have those types of connections and I think this is one of the reasons that people feel disconnected or they don't feel they can be authentic because they feel that people are going to judge them
1: One of the things Dan Buettner talks about in the Blue Zones is that things are set up in communities and in social structures to make the healthy choices the easier choices, right? So it's easier to connect with other people because everything is set up to do that. It's easier to get regular exercise because you have to walk to do certain, to do a lot of your daily activities. Um, And so... Essentially what we find is that our modern life, particularly in cities, is set up to make the unhealthy choices the easiest choices. And that's what we're left with. And then it leads to increasing isolation and poor healthcare for ourselves.
0: Do you um, see a solution in the near term for that, or do you feel it's going to get worse? (laughs)
1: Hmm. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, well, I think people are getting more, uh, aware of it and people are trying to make some of the changes that actually will get us to make the healthier choices. You know, I mean, if you think about the campaign against smoking, I mean, now only 14% of adults smoke. It used to be over half of adults smoked, and that was from a decades-long concerted campaign including taxation and all kinds of things Seatbelts. Seatbelts were thought to be some communist plot you know initially and now they're just kind of routine and so many fewer people die in traffic accidents and so you know the question is can some of these things change over time the way the way we deal with food the way we deal with um, psychoactive substances but i think many many people are beginning to understand that healthy choices are possible. And then the question is, how do we set them up? How do we make it the easy choice to make?
0: Well, as you know, I think in the United States, uh, we have a diminishing middle class because uh, the social safety net is being removed. We have ever increasing income inequality and, um, unfortunately, uh, the prevalence of a lot of uh, numbing agents. And um, well, I certainly agree that uh, publicity uh, is critically important, or I should say education, but in the context of what seems to be a political process which uh, supports extractive behavior, uh, What are your thoughts on that? Thoughts on? Well, uh, society is more focused or is now oriented towards um, taking away from the majority to give to a very small minority. And in fact, even health sometimes, if you look in uh, poverty communities, uh, and we talked about food, you don't have healthy choices there you have, you know, these small stores that charge a lot and they have ultra processed foods and things like this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, you know, our system rewards a lot of the things that are unhealthy for us. Right. So, um, you know, there's just there are just so many incentives to, to, to do the wrong things. Uh, to create food deserts where people can't get decent food to market to people, the joys of, you know, drinking a lot, the joys of gambling a lot. I mean, think about all the, you know, now the marketing of, um, gambling that we know destroys so many families. I mean, there's so many things that we do because, uh, because it, it both is appealing in the short term. It's hedonically appealing to, lots and lots of people and it makes lots of money and those are the those are incentives that are hard to turn around
0: no i i you know i mean it seems like there's a small group of people who are fighting the good fight and there's a whole lot of uh, corporate entities and uh, extraordinarily wealthy individuals who are trying to counter that
1: yeah we mean greed greed right uh greed hatred and delusion those are the three <laughs> poisons of buddhism uh, and a lot of people are full of greed
0: yes uh, uh any insights into how to uh, uh, convert that feeling my own uh, are that until a profound event occurs uh, in their lives, and either uh, someone close to them uh, suffers from a disease or a condition, or they themselves are brought to the brink of death. Uh, otherwise, it can be very hard to change their mind.
1: You know, one of the things that used to change minds was the experience of being with people who are very different from you. Um, that's harder now. We live in these bubbles, but you know one of the things they found was that, When people came back, when soldiers came back from World War II, they were actually somewhat more politically open and liberal because they had been thrown together with people who were so different. And they had come to rely on those people and to trust those people and to realize that there were so many different ways to live a life uh, and so many different cultures and places to be from in the U.S. that many people began to have more of a sense of openness. Um, and that's harder to get now. It's, it's one of the reasons why some people have advocated for national service for young adults. Not military service, but just any kind of service. But particularly where we're thrown together with people who are not like us. And, and we rely on, come to rely on each other and uh, recognize each other in a way that that we don't do now.
0: Yeah, I I think you're absolutely correct. In fact, I I, I was uh, thinking the exact same thing about uh, when we had a draft that at least for most people uh, involved everyone from lower to upper class and uh, this uh, connection of being together, uh, relying on each other was critically important. And I think it gave... um, insights into both classes, the lower class into uh, insight into the wealthy class and understanding that their lives are not perfect, but also understanding uh, sort of a idea of compassion or connection uh, and that um, we're all the same. Uh, but I think you're right. It's, uh, it's really a problem because, as you said, we live in bubbles. I think it would be great if we brought back uh, a required service uh for two years that uh, was non-discriminatory that involved everyone uh i think that would make a much better society yeah let me switch gears here a little bit and uh, in some ways uh, the work you've been doing is a side effect is longevity and we see a whole cadre of people chasing longevity, but it's not necessarily related to uh, depth of relationships or human connection. And these are the people who uh, oftentimes are in the uh, top 1% who have the resources and they take 100 supplements a day and they have designed diets and all of these other things. Any thoughts about that?
1: About what, About what they're doing?
0: uh huh i i mean uh it's in some ways it's a uh it's like offering um a small group of people uh the ability to actually uh have access to these things while we still have a, a significant number of people who don't have any access yeah
1: well it's also the myth that you know we can infinitely prolong life and that we infinitely want to um I, I was listening to a nutritionist once say that all these supplements that are a multi-billion dollar industry, they're just a way of making very expensive urine. And, <laughs> you know, most of these supplements are of no proven value of any kind. Uh, so there are a lot of people jumping through hoops and doing expensive things that don't really count for much. But you're right. There are these huge disparities in who has access to decent health care. Uh, as well as decent food, as we know, um, and and that's you know that remains a a huge problem for all of us because you know the it 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 drags all of us down when some of us are are unable to stay healthy. Um, but the other thing we don't do, I mean, they, I see a lot of books about you know the end of aging or reverse aging. And that's just one of those wonderful fantasies, one of those great lies that we tell ourselves, right? Like that's not going to happen. Um, but we, but it, it is a way to promise that these things we don't want to face, we won't have to face, like old age, sickness, and death. Um, and uh, so I would say that, um, you know, I just, I just watch us all try to run away from the truth of. Of human life
0: no I think that's right I I, I think in some ways it's uh, uh, promoting a delusion and as you said at uh, the vast vast majority of these supplements are completely useless but it makes up a, a multi-billion dollar industry in some ways I, I'm sure some of our listeners will get angry it is like homeopathy in that you're giving water with a molecule uh, of a substance, or at least it says there's a molecule of a substance, and you're selling that for a significant amount of money. And uh, uh, yet I think what people don't appreciate in some ways, and you can just look at the placebo effect, how we have immense power within ourselves uh, to impact our bodies and obviously our environment, if we so choose. Mm. Yeah. How do you think meditation and some of these Eastern practices impact uh, well-being or human thriving? You were mentioning that you were having a hard time meditating, but that being said, I think we see a lot of evidence that meditation can have a profound uh, physiologic effect in a positive sense.
1: Mm, Yeah. Um, And... Meditation isn't for everybody. Uh, Meditation is something that resonates for some people and for other people. Nah, no. So I would say that it's really the process of coming into presence, right? Being present for something that we know has really profound physiologic effects. Both on the mind and the body. Um, And that... You know, meditation is one way to come into presence, to keep bringing yourself back to the present moment, instead of being lost in thoughts of the past and the future. Um, But it could also be skiing down a slope. It could be gardening. It could be playing music, uh, depending. I think, you know, we talk about states of flow, uh, which are these states where we're really very present or whatever's happening and so time just seems to pass by effortlessly we often lose a sense of time um, so it doesn't have to be meditation because for some people that doesn't that's not really right
0: No, I think you're you're absolutely correct and I, I, I think this is where people get confused a lot because many people think they have to sit on a cushion and have their legs crossed and, uh, and not attend to anything and just be there, which the very nature of that for a subset of people is stressful. Uh, but I think understanding that any activity that brings you to the present uh, uh, helps. At m- in my backyard, uh, I actually have um, a patio made out of concrete, but between the patio are about six inches, and in those six inches are loose stones. And it's funny because I, uh, when I come home often, because I have uh, dogs, uh, uh, they'll all be messed up and I have children. So, uh, but one of my own practices is simply to walk around and slowly push all the rocks back into place. And, uh, you know, it's a, I think a very uh, uh, soothing exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Um Let's uh, talk about psychedelics. Any thoughts?
1: I don't know much about them. Uh, no. I there's I know there's a huge amount of interest, and I know that um, the FDA has approved or is about to approve psilocybin for uh, PTSD, uh, kind of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, and. So I don't know. I think these agents have some promise. And, you know, as with everything we develop, we always over promise. So for some people, psychedelics seem like they're the answer to everything, which they're almost certainly not. But it does seem like they're, it's opening up some possibilities for people with intractable mental illnesses that... um may really benefit from use of some of these agents?
0: Well, I, I think a lot of people, um, perhaps uh, because of the, the baggage they carry from their childhood, uh, they don't appreciate that that um, baggage influences every decision they make, and whether it's in terms of relationships, interactions with others, uh, jobs, that it can impede them. And uh, um, for a subset of those people uh, who've had challenges with dealing with this, uh, uh, there's this idea, and whether it's true or not, but that you can reset your uh, ego, if you will, or dissolve your ego or whatever terminology so that that baggage doesn't have as prominent of an influence on you uh, as before. Yeah, and I don't I
1: don't know that uh, we know whether that's possible or how it works. And certainly it has very different effects for different people, but we can't uh, we're never going to dissolve the ego, nor would we want to.
0: <laughs> well, uh, like I said, that's a term people use, and uh, you're right. I mean, the ego has a purpose, uh, but it's like everything as you were mentioning. There are good parts and there are bad parts. And uh, you have to be knowledgeable and understand, I think, the nuances of uh, these things. What, uh, what would you suggest for someone who may not know of your work, although that may be a very small few uh, no. in the face of the uh, popularity and the uh, work you've done, but you know, for those who are sort of just learning about this or want to improve themselves, and we talk about depth of relationships and things like that, do you have any specific advice? Or, and I again, obviously, nothing is easy. But uh, uh, what do you have advice for somebody? And do you think there's sort of an age limit into onto? uh, when you can help yourself or when you cannot by these types of recommendations.
1: Well, there's no age limit. I mean, we've seen people in our study, uh, make good deep friendships for the first time in their seventies and eighties. So no age limit. Um, but the last chapter of the book is titled it's never too late for that reason. And we give stories about that. Um, but I think you know what people can do. Certainly, they can they can look at the book, which has a bunch of sort of descriptions of things that people can do. So, in addition to life stories and the developmental science, um, we have a bunch of ideas based on uh, research on you know how people actually do strengthen relationships, how they make new relationships. Um, and it is possible at any age. Um, it often requires sustained attention and a consistent practice.
0: Well, exactly. And uh, uh, again, I, I think for some that is a challenge, but I think having knowledge and having more information, uh, you know, for many people can be a motivator. And as you were saying, uh, it's never too late. I think some people, uh, feel that way. Oftentimes they say, well, then there's no reason for me, uh, to do anything. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. There was a, and you're probably familiar with that. There was a study, I think it was done in Wisconsin associated with volunteerism. And I think the people were over the age of 65. And, um, it was interesting in that they had, uh, you know, these various groups of people, but they were, uh, matched in some way. But at the end of the, uh, the, the, and I, I'm probably screwing up the summary of this, but if I recall correctly, uh, those people who volunteered a certain number of hours per week, uh, and these were people of the age of 65, it actually resulted in a 2x, uh, increase in uh, expected longevity. And, uh, what are your ideas Uh, and there were two exceptions though and uh, if I recall one was uh, if they were doing it to uh, have secondary gain in the sense of uh, to get an award or to compare themselves with other people uh, uh, or so that they could brag about it uh, it had no effect on their longevity hmm
1: well that's interesting I don't know that study I mean, I suspect the benefits have to do with the social stimulation and the that that affects our brains, uh, you know, as well as our bodies, the physical activity. Um, And we know that when people feel that they are being generous, that they can be generous, they feel better. Uh, That it is one of the kind of core aspects of, of well-being that people cite all over the world when they do surveys like the UN World Happiness Report um but whether you just do it to get an award or to uh, compare yourself to other people you know I don't know what if doing it for the wrong reasons means you don't live as long I'd be interested in the mechanism by which that works
0: yeah I, uh, I and I can't answer that for you um Speaking of that, uh, uh, I'm sure you've heard, or I think it's uh, maybe common knowledge to a lot of people, this idea that uh, increasing wealth does not increase happiness beyond, I think it was $75,000 a year. But it seems as though there's new data out, and I think uh, Dr. Kahneman uh, uh, reported this, that actually the analysis was incorrect, and it actually did show that increasing wealth, even up to $500,000 a year, seemed to be associated with uh, um, being more happy. Uh, any thoughts on that? Are you familiar with that study?
1: I am. So Daniel Kahneman and Matt Killingsworth, uh, Matt found a different, he found that happiness kept going up and uh, and Kahneman found that it didn't. And so they did what was called an adversarial collaboration, where they reanalyzed all their data together. And what they did find was that there was still an increase as you got above that $75,000 a year threshold. But that what they found was that that the people who were trying to be happier by making more money did not succeed. So the take-home message from their collaboration was that it is not a route to make yourself happier making more money.
0: And I think that's uh, uh, probably a, uh, a good point. Actually, I wanted to ask you a question because we're asking about background and you were sharing how you became a Roshi. Um, you went to Harvard uh, as an undergrad and went to uh, uh, Harvard Medical School. What is your own uh, background, if I might ask?
1: Well, I'm Jewish. I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I never, I never knew a psychiatrist growing up. I never, I had never heard of meditation, let alone Zen. Um, and, uh, it was quite an adventure going, going from Des Moines to Harvard. It was like going to another planet,
0: In a good way or a different way?
1: Well, both, in a good way, in that I found some wonderful people who were really, you know, who who loved to learn and and loved to talk about ideas. And and that was great, because I didn't grow up with that very much. Um, But I also, you know, in the Midwest, you don't strut your stuff. You don't tout your accomplishments. And when I got here, there were all these Harvard freshmen telling each other how great they were and how much they'd accomplished. And I was like terrified. I was like, this is like, these are like alien beings. So it was both.
0: You know, it's funny, I have done a lot of work with Google. And it would always be interesting because we would have meetings. And obviously, there are a lot of young people you know, in their early 20s who are working there. And I, it, it would always be funny because usually within five minutes or so, they would tell you they either went to Harvard or Stanford and tell you uh, their GPA. And uh, it was sort of like <laughs> yeah and uh, but it, it is um, interesting how any even I mean I'm sure you meet people who even today all of that stuff seems important to them.
1: Oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> and, and some at one point when my department chair was telling me about these these next hoops I should jump through to get a new, kind of award, I said, I didn't think I was going to do that. And I said to my department chair, I said, you know, all this stuff is
0: all made up anyway, you know?
1: And he looked at me and he said, Bob, too much Zen.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I'm at Stanford and I've been there a while. And, uh, you know, it it always fascinates me uh, uh, how competitive people are. And this constant comparison uh, always as you go forward. And, you know, I've always said I, I choose not to participate. I just try to uh, do my thing and do the best I can at it and uh, and also recognize that, uh, you know, there's some people who are meant for that path, and I recognize that that just wasn't uh, uh, what I was interested in. But, uh, you know, yeah. that takes uh, uh, time to uh, develop that insight. What, uh, so you mentioned uh, uh, meditation, Uh, was, did you, were you, well, first question is, why did you go into psychiatry?
1: Because it was the most interesting thing I found in medicine. Like I realized that I didn't really care very much about physical diseases (laughs) unless someone I knew had them. So, you know, when we had to memorize the, you know, 12 different kinds of thyroid tumors or this or that, I just, it was just an enormous yawn for me. And, um, but what I realized was that looking at what made people tick psychologically was really interesting. And so I realized that i would I would probably keep being interested in that for many, many years. and because uh, I hadn't had any interest in psychiatry when I started med school.
0: interesting. do you uh, uh, because i and I've heard these arguments, and I'm not trying to be uh, confrontational, but there's some people who argue that a psychology, psychiatry therapy, uh, it's it's a method of uh, no one ever gets better. I mean, how many psychiatrists like say, OK, you're better now. You don't need to see me. And I always find that sort of a fascinating. I do. <laughs> well, besides you, you're the only one in America. No, I mean, no. no, no I, I, I'm i just saying that uh, uh, oftentimes people are in therapy for 5, 10, 20, 30 years.
1: Oh, The majority of people, the vast majority I work with, are not in therapy indefinitely. No way. They come, they do a particular piece of work, and they leave. And for many of them, it's absolutely life-changing. And many of them say that the emotional suffering that they endure is far worse than physical suffering they've endured. And um, so I think it's a myth, you know, that there's there's a reason why... um, People have needed this kind of treatment for years, uh, including many of my died in the wool medical colleagues who are really skeptical of psychotherapy. When they find their way to my office, it's like they finally, it's such a relief to be able to talk about what's really going on
0: in their lives. Uh, would you say a lot of it has to do with prior baggage they carry with them, or is there- Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that they've come to see themselves in the world in certain ways and that it can really be helpful to uh, to get a glimpse of the world outside of their, you know... Bubble. What did David Foster Wallace call them? He said, our tiny skull-shaped kingdoms.
0: Yes, uh, what was the name of that? Is that the, wa- was that the book about water? What was the name of it? Uh, yeah, This Is Water, water. Yes. that
1: wonderful commencement address. Yes,
0: here. and a very sad story for him, though, right? Yeah. Uh, which it it's interesting that sometimes people who seemingly have immense amount of knowledge suffer a great deal and don't treat themselves. Yeah. Uh, and uh, speaking of that, um, uh, there's a lot of literature uh, that actually, um, looking through the lens of the reality that everyone is suffering, and having this idea of compassion and caring for others uh, has a huge, huge uh, positive effect on their physiology.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Christopher, you don't feel isolated. You don't feel like you're the only one who's suffering. There was a, a, a minister in the 19th century who said to his flock, be kind for every person you meet is fighting a great battle.
0: No, that's exactly right. And I, I think sometimes people forget that because, you know, focusing on your own suffering, uh, it's, it's interesting. It seems, I don't like the word necessarily self-indulgent, but when you feel your suffering and you only focus on that, uh, oftentimes that's not helpful. And then when you look out in the world and see other people suffering, Uh, it uh, makes you realize that you're not necessarily alone. And in fact, I think there's a body of evidence that demonstrates that that can be a great um, alleviator of an individual's suffering and help them with their own depression. Yeah. Uh, What would you suggest uh, to anyone who's listening in terms of how to improve their own lives and uh, be happy?
1: Well, I would say invest in relationships, that that it's got the best payoff in terms of helping people through the hard times and giving them more good times.
0: Well, I think that says it all. Well, listen, Bob, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. I uh, hope you have a wonderful day, and I hope uh, our paths cross again. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.